Off the Ball. Getting inside the game. Sponsored by Ireland's favourite car brand, Ford. Go further. All right, just going to break it even to you. Good evening. The golf's been pretty compelling today. Yeah, it's been great. Yeah. Uh, I didn't see the really early stuff, but I kind of saw the end of the of the four ball and then the start of the uh, foursomes, and it was, yeah, it was encapsulating. Yeah. Um, the whole thing about them being teammates, they, they kind of buy into it. I, I never quite understood why, but they really do. Yeah, I, I think it's it's unusual to them having that sense of not just letting themselves down, but there's now... Know, crew of eleven other guys that they have to worry about. So, you you, you see, you know, Webb Simpson. I saw that this morning. You know, yeah. uh, heard an interview before that someone talked about um, being playing the first Ryder Cup, the first tee on the first day, and literally not being able to see the ball. It's like that's just nervousness that you don't expect from professional golfers, but it just mean it must mean so much more to them. Yeah. Did you get nervous for bigger games? Was there a, a different like? Can you identify with that at all? Uh, yeah. When there was more at stake, um, not necessarily bigger teams, but when there was, when there were trophies on the line, yeah, uh, for sure you, um, you you did because, you know that thought of you know at the end of eighty minutes you could feel absolutely horrific or you could be completely on on cloud nine, um, so just that that can't but inspire a few nerves. Yeah, how long does the the nervousness last? Is it kick off? That's it. It's gone. That ball dropped off. Yeah, it's all over. Yeah, uh, and and then it, you know, obviously you don't pick it up at half half time because yeah. you're just trying to regroup. It's literally the second that the game begins. And when would they kick in? As a matter of interest, is it like days before? Weeks? Some, yeah, yeah, really? yeah. So like Grand Slam game, probably early on that week. Yeah, and then and then some days um, at different times during the day. I, I I have kind of different levels of weirdness the day of a game. Yeah. So. Um, you know, my wife Amy would have known at what point to leave me alone or to get out of the house because you you, you go through the gears of being becoming odder and odder and and getting into your own little world. Yeah, talking to yourself, that kind of stuff. Just actually not wanting to talk to anyone. Yeah. Just literally, it's not even that you're playing the game over in your head. It's it's that you just don't want to have to focus on anything else. You don't want to put any time or energy into any other conversation. You just want to be completely selfish for yeah. the lead up to it. Did you get better as time went on or worse as time went on? I'd say worse. Yeah. Yeah, I needed yeah. I needed it more myself, you know, my my time to be my own. Um and again it did depend at certain times like when was it the the Rabo final game against Ulster two seasons ago, we'd we'd uh, lost three on the bounce, three finals on the bounce. This was the fourth. I just thought we can't lose four, and I remember being horrifically nervous for that one. So I would say it was difficult to deal with that day. That's funny because that that's the week after you win the Heineken Cup. Yeah, but it didn't matter. It just you shelved that. Great, we won the Heineken Cup. Now we really, really need to uh, win this competition. Yeah. We really need to, you know. Oh, sorry, Get the monkey off our back. It wasn't. I don't think we did win a Heineken that it was year. The, no, it was the week what, after we the. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it wasn't that one. Um, all right. after the Amlin, that was it. Yeah, uh, when the team was playing great as well. Um, the rugby news this week, kind of, uh, it's funny. It's it's that still quite false period of the year where the news isn't real news, and, mm. and so if anybody says anything, everybody jumps on it. So Tommy Bow was happy to play thirteen. Was the big news coming out of um, the jersey launch earlier on this week, and. Uh, we were chatting with Jerry Thorny about it, kind of going, you know, look, the, what is this? Could he play 13? What's the story? And he was like, well, he mentioned it to Mark Anscombe last year and Anscombe laughed and said, listen, that would be insane. You've got world-class finisher who's brilliant in his position 
and you're going to move him and create a problem on the wing and who knows if he's going to be the same world class player at 13 I think that really depends on what your strength and depth is like in in you know in in the wing position so someone like Mark Anscombe in in um in Ulster um felt that you know what he had inside at 13 um married with Tommy on the wing was better than Tommy marrying with someone else, you know, second or third choice winger. So even though, you know, Trims and Craig Gilroy and um, your man Allen, you know, are all very capable players. But um, I, for me, it's always about getting your best players on the pitch, irrespective of their position preference. So um, it's kind of quite a, a French Thought, thought process where you could play three or four different positions but just getting your footballers out there yeah um, not a very Irish so thing at all it's not really it's not it's, we, we, we become pigeonholed very very young into oh no he's a centre he can only play centre oh he can only play 13 he can't play 12 it's it's rubbish guys should be able to and that's what the school system should be used for and the club system and, and the youth system to be able to get guys to try new positions and it can. The only problem with that is sometimes it can work against you in that you become this utility back rather than oh no he's a he's a phenomenal winger he's a phenomenal fullback. Yeah, um, maybe the whole country benefits though from having loads and loads of utility players and somebody over a course of time puts their hand up in one position and gets better. Yeah, yeah, and and you know when I talk about the best footballers, so um, so you look at at Leinster at the moment that you've got um, Ian Madigan and Jimmy Gopperth looking at the ten jersey, but now Ian's playing. At twelve, you know, because he's he's a very good footballer. There's no doubt. Um, so it's about trying to accommodate as many of your footballers and give them a chance in a position that maybe they're not used to. Um, because you know, there's no point in having a you know three world class wingers and not yeah. being able to pick one of them. Yeah, and, and not even getting in the match day squad sometimes. Exactly. If you don't play a couple of positions on the bench, um, as I know only too well, you know you're not going to get uh, you're not going to get selected. So Tommy Bow saying I can play thirteen. He's he's like, oh, of course I can play thirteen. I'll play on the wing. I'll play fullback. Well, Tommy totally can play thirteen as well. On top of yes, he wants to you know give himself a number of options um, to be selected in the first fifteen. But Tommy's played for. Uh, Played uh, the third test of the Lions in in '09. Uh, he used to play a bit over in, in the Ospreys. Um, I've you know I've defended against Tommy in Irish training sessions playing at 13. So yeah, he's he's more than capable. Um, but he, he I think for him he you know having seen the the success of the team Six Nations, he just wants to get himself back in the team in some yeah. in, in some jersey. We were talking at the end of uh, last the last time you remember this, the, there was a question about um, defence, and you were talking about Darcy being the the biggest influence over the the um, defensive philosophy that you had during your career. Mm-hmm. What does the defensive, what's the difference between defending at 12 and 13? Because like, the other w- suggestion out there at the moment is that Doris might be able to play 13 as well. Um, yeah, he'd be, he would uh, comfortably play at 13. He's playing He's playing there tonight. Yeah. Um, and he's played, you know, he's played plenty of times for Leinster and he's played a couple of times for Ireland in 13. Um, defending at 12 and 13 are quite different um, but because you know, when you're as good a defender as him, it probably won't matter as much. I think he's he's vastly experienced. Um, thirteen defending at thirteen is very dependent on how your twelve defends and how much he wants to work for you. So I had the luxury of having Gordon for a lot of years, and he was always someone that worked more than you expected of him. So if if you're expected to push out one, he used to push out one and a half, and he used to give great security and plugging your inside. So um, you'd be you'd only have to worry about you know someone taking on the arc or taking outside if they step back inside they're stepping back into the meat of his tackle so yeah. he, that was one thing his work rate of defence is, is quite phenomenal 
Was he then, always as good at like? Because that sounds like something that is very rare. And if you can identify this is what he does, is it possible to train other people to do yeah, that? Yeah, I suppose it is. But it's a, you know that's a, a mentality as well and a hunger for it. Um, the other thing from a defensive point of view is um, so off 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 the first off first phase. Obviously, you're defending ten, twelve, thirteen winger, but then when you know, when a team hits up in the middle or, you know, say Gordon had to make a tackle, then you want ideally to, your, to have your two centres splitting. So you don't have your 10, 12, 13 loaded on one side and then on the other side you might have two a loose props. forward or yeah. worst case scenario is you know, a couple of front rowers. So we would always be working and trying to share that role of working for one another. If a guy makes a tackle, the natural progression is for him to go. But sometimes... If, if if the team hits a couple of t- a couple of times inside ten, that's the way clever teams used to work. They'd hit inside ten, hit inside ten, and then sweep around. So they'd know that we were all stacked up. So you have to read that sometimes and push your ten to go across onto the blind side to make sure that he was able to to defend with the back rowers and, and the chubbies. That comes from um, playing together a lot, or that comes from the defensive philosophy of the team saying when this is under. That should be every team's philosophy. You should get should be getting the split. You want a little bit of. A little bit of gas on the on the uh, on the outsides because your the your back three and your and your fifteen will be playing a, a pendulum as well depending on where the ball is so they'll be working in unison so the full back will be pushing his his winger up when he needs to play you know play across and and as that's happening you know the blind winger will be dropping back into the pocket and so that it's a constant pendulum and that's why the the back three run the most meters. People don't see it happening. You know, it's, it's more often than not off camera. But yeah. they they run so much, and it's thankless a lot of the work they do. Yeah. But it's uh, it's hugely important to just showing a good picture and and discouraging um, out halves to be going for crossfield kicks or going to the space. The reason that I'm kind of talking about this in, in detail is because uh, the whole notion of you and Darcy always having twelve and thirteen and being kind of stuck together that it would never change. That's not the case. It's at a all. real myth. The twelve thirteen thing, the number on on your jersey, it, it's it's almost gotten out of control now. Like for years, um, and irrespective of what team or who your centre partner was, you always mix and matched. Um, I would have played. I just liked wearing thirteen, but the, I would have had a number of centre partners. I would have played with John Kelly uh, from from uh, from Munster uh, for Ireland over in New Zealand. I've played with Earlsy, played with lots of different guys, and I would have been playing twelve a lot because they were more comfortable at thirteen, defending at thirteen. From an attack point of view, I think you play to your strengths. So on the Lions tour in '09, I would have played a little bit at twelve, using Jamie Rom- Roberts as as your go forward, yeah, and. It's a polite at, word. At, at, at times, uh, you know, using him as a decoy as well because you knew the defence had to sit down and respect his line if he ran a good line. Yeah. And you use that to your benefit and then sometimes you throw it across him, sit them down, throw it across him and then they'd they'd be stretched. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really, you know, we have to play with numbers because you can't play with 212s or 213s. But, you know, it's... It's really incidental. Yeah, and so therefore the debate shouldn't really be about uh, who's going to play number thirteen. The question should be about what's the partnership going to be. Yeah, it should be, and and whether you know whether they complement each other. So there's lots of different varieties you can have. You see, English teams more recently have gone with big size in the centre. Uh, other than than uh, Kyle Eastman, um, you know they've gone with Burrell and and Tuolangi. Uh, we don't really have guys that size no. in this country, so they, you know, we've had to go with 
two tiny guys in Darius and myself. But um, you know, you look at uh, beyond Kevin Mags, we've a lot of our centres have been quite small. Yeah. You know, Earl Z, even going back to Mike Mullins. Um, so after Kevin Mags and, and and Rob Henderson, you know, we, we probably play to our strengths in in using our width and using our deception um, and taking taking players on and taking defenses on with our feet rather than with bludgeon. Yeah, it's a fairly obvious thing to do then to keep the partnership that you guys had together for so long. It's a much more difficult thing to replace that, particularly over the, the time frame that we're looking at here. Um, we were talking with Jamie Heaslip last week about, you know, you have this natural compulsion to answer all the questions that we ask you about the World Cup by saying, no, one game at a time, one game at a time. But ultimately, Joe Schmidt has to be thinking about the World Cup and every game, I guess, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm wrong about He's that. He's absolutely thinking of the World Cup. Of course he is. Um, now that his first Six Nations is under his belt, he's, he, we managed to win the championship. That was... That was probably his goal at the start. I don't think he was thinking Grand Slam. I think he was probably thinking Championship. Yeah. And anything else would be an absolute added bonus. But he's managed to win that. Fantastic. Does it take pressure off him or put more on? I don't know. It depends on what way you want to look at it. But Joe is absolutely working back from, when is it, September next year. So 11 months away, that nearly 12 months away. And um, so I think there's going to be a clamour from the, the public and the media to go, well, who's, who's playing in these shirts and, and who's going to have it nailed down for the World Cup? But maybe it's the week before the World Cup that, or maybe it's two games into the World Cup that the, the partnership actually is unfurled to the public. Yeah, I'd say that's unlikely too, though. I would say he's looking at these November internationals to try new combinations. Um, he, um, he's got players that are... You know, putting their hand up now. Obviously, I'd say the guys, most guys on the summer tour, no one was a massive standout player. Yeah. Uh, so now the guys that are getting the first opportunity in November, I would say that they've got they have a great opportunity to to say, you know, you know, why should you take the jersey off me for the next one? Um, so it'll be. I, I think Joe will be looking at combination. He'll want to play them in the in the Six Nations. He's not going to wait till the summer. Uh, till till the warm up games, yeah, no, no, no. That's I, I, I would be very surprised if that was um, his tack. That means the next six months are incredibly important for they everybody. Are. They are. They are. This is when you get into the team, and if you get into the team and play, stay fit. Yeah, you know, I, I, I would think that that's how it, how it's going to go. Um, there's, you've always, I'm sure he's always leaving scope for, um for a bolter to come through and show great form at the end of the season or a young guy that we don't haven't even heard of that um you know breaks onto the scene of course you have to um you know keep your options uh, open as to playing your best players or playing the guys that are in form but yeah. I, I do think that with combinations with with center pairings with uh with halfbacks that he's going to want to play guys that he sees playing in the world cup together Final point on Darcy. Um, we might not have known how amazing he was as a centre if you hadn't got injured for the France game in '04. He comes in, plays his first game, I think, really as a centre, uh, having been mostly a winger or a fullback in his time before that. Uh, is that could that ever happen again in in international rugby where somebody like that comes in, has one crazy standout game, and that becomes a crazy standout performance in a season, and then that becomes a whole career as one of the great centres in of our age. I don't see why not. Um, the only thing is, the, the, you know, Doris probably hasn't gotten the credit that he's deserved because I, I've had the best seat in the house to see how good he's been for the last decade yeah. and how important he's been to me and to the teams that we've been involved in. Um, he's been instrumental in um, in our defensive system, but also in 
giving you a little bit of space um, because of the lines he runs or picking the right passes. So um, I, d- I don't see why someone else can't come come in and break into the scene like that. You just need to have a very, very talented guy that has a good attitude. And, yeah. And that's what you have in him. And a coach who's willing to take that kind of... And Joe, Joe, Joe will be willing to take that. If he sees talent uh, coming through, he, he won't be, you know, he won't shirk you know, the responsibility of giving a guy a go. Tony Rockar makes the point, what percentage of time and training is spent on defence? Sounds like it's a lot more complicated than attack. This, I've kind of talked about 13 as a defensive role here as opposed to attacking, but obviously it's hugely important to be capable of doing that attacking stuff as well. Yeah, um, percentages. You have a you probably have a defensive day in the week where you'll f- focus largely on what they do. So um, you'll an- analyze on a Monday what um, what the what happened in the game. Um, if you've won, you can skate over it a bit quicker than if you've lost. You have to see where you where you where your failings have been, try and put them right, and then you will analyze the opposition that you're playing on the, the following weekend. Um, and see what they're going to do and see what opportunities you have. And then you'll go out and train. So some days, a Monday might be a defensive day where you focus on them. And then the Tuesday will be your attack game or vice versa. Mm. Those um, those decisions to decide where the 12 and 13 or when you're going to switch in the middle of a game. Who who makes that call or how does that? It's probably dependent on the personnel out in the pitch. Um, how strong-willed your, your 10 is or who, who who your centre is and the, their level of experience. Yeah. Um, I suppose... Let me let me put you in a specific situation then. <laughs> a strong-willed number 10 like Johnny Sexton, <laughs> yourself and Gordon Darcy, how does that... Um, are you all shouting at each other bickering a little bit? Or? No. Darcy was always pretty good for just letting us at it. He let us, you know, have our, have our moments. Um... I think my responsibility as a 13 was to take the pressure away from 10. So I'd try and offer plays to Johnny um, just so he could focus on other aspects of his game because, you know, he is the nucleus of the team. He's the he's the heartbeat. Uh, so he has enough to, to worry about. Um, so at certain situations on a pitch, whether it be scrum or line out, I'll know what plays we've practiced during the week for, the certain, for, for certain sections of the pitch. I'll think, OK, midfield, scrum... Um, on the twenty-two, you know, we've only practiced one or two plays. I'll throw, the, I'll offer the two options into Johnny and, and maybe let him pick, or I might be adamant that I really want to go with one of them. Yeah, that you know, this is this is our play to break them down. So, and Johnny, ninety-nine percent of the time would have gone with me. Okay, but his one percent would have been horrible. <laughs> <laughs> As in, like, get the hell out of here! I'm, it would have been, yeah, it would have been, um, it wouldn't have been pleasant viewing. Yeah, to be, and certainly not gorgeous to be on the receiving end. Of, and, but. and luckily, you weren't ever mic'd up; otherwise, uh, the kids might not have been able to watch. And from a defensive point of view, then if, if there's like a defensive decision to be made, is it exactly the same, is it, or is it less communication than that point? Cause no, it's yeah, you've got, you don't have time to communicate. You just have to understand body language and um, and. You know, I know we keep harping on about Gordon, and but John and Johnny too. You know, Johnny had a real passion for defence and has a passion for defence. He's very strong. Um, you know, even though he's quite wiry looking, he's incredibly strong. Yeah. And, and and defensively, probably you you mightn't expect your ten to be that good defensively. So so from that the knock on effect that that had onto Gordon 
and myself was a, a great comfort to know that we could really just worry about what was happening outside of his channel. Yeah, okay. Um, we're going to put some more questions to Brian in a little while. 53106 is the text number, but it, it's clear that whoever is going to be in that partnership between 12 and 13, they've, they've got a lot of work to do and they've got to be able to show they can manage both the attack and the defence. Yeah, and, and the, the luxury of being in, in the same province is obviously great because you spend a lot of time together. Um, but... Yeah, that doesn't that doesn't always happen. So whoever does play you know, 12-13 over the next year and coming into the World Cup, they will need to spend time with one another talking through different scenarios that they see on the training pitch. Yeah, and so maybe that argues for getting the nail down out. pretty quickly. Yeah, I would say in in a perfect world you will you'll know who your centre pairing are for the World Cup in um in the in the Six Nations. But listen, people are going to are going to pick up injuries, yeah. so you have to have contingency plans. All right. Uh, we're going to talk about the Leinster Monster rivalry after the break as well so any questions about that 53106 is the text number or you can tweet us at Off The Ball we've got uh, Alan Quillen uh, holding up the Munster end in that one uh, and then we, as promised we do have two pairs of All-Ireland hurling final replay tickets to give away tonight to be with a chance of winning tell us who was the top scorer from play in the first game so who was the top scorer from play in the first game text hurling to 53106, your name and answer, and we'll announce the winners a little bit later on this hour. Right back after these. Off the Ball, brought to you by Ford Swappage. Out with the old, in with the new, at fordswappage.ie. All right, you're very welcome back. Uh, we have Brian O'Driscoll with us in studio this evening. We're talking uh, Leinster-Munster rivalry. We also have Alan Quinlan with us on the line. Alan, a very good evening to you. Good evening, lads. Um, Brian, is it fair to say that the heat has gone out of the relationship, the rivalry between these two, a little bit? Considering that it was very intense there for a little while. Um, I don't. I don't think so. Um, yeah, the heat was it was hot uh, a few years ago, but I think you know that was probably down to um, to monster success. That's how. That's what, what kicked it off, really, and um, their ability to be in Europe week on, or year on year. And you know, from a Leinster perspective, we wanted that. Um, so that's what started it. Um, I suppose you'd have to ask the guys that are involved now. I never saw the heat go out of it in, in my in my time. I always looked forward to it. It was always a great challenge. That was the big reason because you knew it was going to be a huge test and you knew that if you were going to beat Munster, you were in a decent place um, physically and probably mentally. And so that meant that European competition then was going to be okay. So that's why, that's why I used to love that game in the lead-up to Europe because uh, it did prepare you well. It was, it was like a, a European game. It wasn't like a... A pro a pro twelve game. It was like a a European game, and some of them were like you know maybe lower end internationals. So it was it was a, it was a great one to prepare you for you know for the European battle that was just around the corner. There was a long period of time where Munster won every game in a row, and then it flipped, and Leinster won every game in a row. Um, when you're getting beaten all the time, do you still love the games? No, uh, no. It's um, you'd prefer to obviously win ugly than than lose. You know, lose playing brilliantly. Um, but I, I used to live the defeats to Munster a lot more than uh, I would have some games uh, because it, you know it just meant that bit more. It meant probably the bragging rights for your supporters, but it also meant that um, you were in a good place because uh, there were there's not many bad Munster teams. Yeah, and even I think you see of the last couple of years that the. the 
you know, no disrespect to that current crop of players, but I don't think they're as good as a team as as you know, the team that came through the noughties that got to four Heineken Cup finals. Yeah. Um, but yet they still managed to get themselves into two Heineken Cup finals in, in uh, successive years. So that, you know that that speaks volumes for them. Alan, from the Munster perspective, um, what was the the most intense the rivalry gets? I think they're all intense. Um, Drico said it. It's, it's it's a huge match. Um, it always has been. It's kind of like some of those. It's like derbies around the world, but it's it's like no other rugby fixture really that that I've ever experienced because um, it is the bragging rights. Um, you know, you're going around the Irish squad from my experience over the years, and uh, you gain a lot of momentum too when you play Leinster and and, and vice versa. When you get that win, um, it breeds confidence in the squad, and sometimes you could be on a bit of a a bad run, and uh, as Drico said as well, I think you win that match, it just gives a, a real good feel factor throughout the squad, and it was always vital for, for both teams, I think, um, leading into Europe, because it was, I suppose we res- respected the league over the years, that the Leinster-Munster game was a real step up in intensity, um, just passion, effort levels, work rate, and it was it was, it was was just always a different game, um, it was just, the whole week was different, it really went up just a couple of notches, the whole intensity and, and the passion and about the whole fixture. And I think, you know, obviously the crowds have grown over the years. Brian wouldn't remember this, but I I was involved in Munster in 97 down in Limerick. And I'm sure you, you might have heard this one before where, you know, we played an Interpro against Leinster down in, uh, down in Limerick. There was 150, 200 people at the game. Um, it was on Indoor Dial, Tone Park was... Um, been refurbed, I think, at the time with the pitch, and and there was probably 150 people at the game. So the rivalry was always there, but I think the fans, the crowds, and and the Heineken Cup um, has built the thing up so much more to the point that you know you look back over the last couple of years, and I hate looking back at that semi final in, in zero nine. Drico probably loves it, but you know 85,000 people in Croke Park, where have where it's just phenomenal the way it's grown. But the passion, the intensity, going back when I played against Victor and Reggie and, and Shane Byrne, um, these guys, you know, the older Leinster guys, the more, you know, back in back in the late, the, the mid to late 90s, the rivalry was always there, those bragging rights. And, but, you know, obviously with the Heineken Cup, and, and I think, in fairness, Drico said it as well, the, with us winning the Heineken Cup, sure there's envy. If it was the other way around, the Leinster were winning Heineken Cups, and, you know, you kind of it drives you on that yeah. that success of one of your rivals, and um, you know, in fairness, Leinster they've they've uh, surpassed um, you know what we achieved in a couple of years back. In more recent years, what's what's kind of frustrated me is that there's the perception from English and French clubs in Europe that you know we rest a lot of players before the before Europe, and you know that's what that's what was their gripe with us. Um, whereas we used to nearly always look for that fixture with Munster in the lead into Europe. Now this I know this year there's there's another Pro twelve game um in between. in between but um it used to be just a great one to test to see where you are, where you are physically and you know how could, how well conditioned you are because we always knew that Munster were very fit and you know they were just a great team to p- pitch yourself against. And um and you know, all these English teams thinking, oh no, they're resting all their big players. It wasn't it was like it would be it was like playing three European games in a row. 
you know, with, with that monster tie. And that really worked as well. I think maybe when I talk about the heat being gone, the, like, there's no Felipe stoking the flames. There's no O'Gara versus Sexton rivalry right now at the moment. And the, but I definitely felt like both teams and the fans fed off that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's, pro- you know, on reflection, that's probably fair. I think there was... Um, there was a, that that group of players, that the people that Quinny talked about, the Reggies and Victors and Shane Burns, and then obviously all Axel and Quinny and you know, Golov in the early years and Claw, like they would have played each other, against each other for seven, eight, nine, ten years. Yeah, and so that gives they you an opportunity to yeah to to, <laughs> to build um you know to build a passion for your own team and a little bit of a hate for the opposition. So um, maybe you know. The, those guys that are just come into the setups in in both Leinster and, and and Munster, and they are quite young teams at the moment. Yeah, a lot of guys in their early twenties. So give them time; they'll they'll, they'll soon grow but to hate I each think, other. I think Drico, they have so many matches coming at themselves now that they can't really focus. That we hate Munster, or we hate Leinster, and you lose all the emotion in that game, and you forget about what's the week before, what's the week after, and they're young, as you say. They have so many games coming at them, whereas a few years back, you know. The game was built up a little bit more. Um, you didn't have as many fixtures. Um, and I think that that's part of it as well. I think on the fans, that thing, that has calmed a bit now since I've come out of come out of rugby in 2011. And, and there was a real bite with the supporters, kind of, you know, 07, 8, 9, 10, maybe 11. And I think it's calmed down a bit. There's kind of a respect there now and, and probably respect on both sides. That I, I just wonder if that's necessarily a good thing now. Like res- that's I, good. I think it is. Because respect I, yeah, yeah. I think it is a little bit because, you know, some of the stuff was a little bit nasty and from both sides. I mean, this Munster fans, Jeer and Leinster people, players, and I think rugby is all about having some respect and, and you know, you don't get any of that kind of stuff. It's, we're not used to that. And, and the way this fan base has, has built up over the years it's phenomenal, and a lot of people are kind of new to this phenomenon of 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 going off supporting the team around Europe and and going to rugby games week after week in the RDS or Thomond Park or wherever. So it's 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 relatively new, because and I think that can only Quinny come from um from both teams having success. If you have one team on yeah. top, yeah, absolutely, you, know, you, and, and you that cannot because you, you'll always have guys that. Have a chip on their shoulder, yeah, so and, it and can Munster, only. Munster yeah. fans are probably jeering the Leinster fans a little bit when we won it. Oh yeah, and then Leinster get back and say, "Well, we have it now, and we've won three, and you've won two, and we're better, and all this stuff." But it was quite, quite there was a fair bit of venom there. And if I you can take the venom out, there should there needs to be that sense of rivalry though, because definitely. Oh the, yeah, the rivalry is there for sure. The fans want to win, of course they do. But I think it was just getting a little bit too much, a little bit nasty. But it, the rivalry is there now, and I think it's calmed down now. Where you know, I was at the Leinster both games last year, the one in Thomond Park, the Munster one, and and honestly, I really mean this. I found that Munster people were like more welcoming to the Leinster fans. The Leinster fans kind of enjoyed the experience a bit more, um, and the same in the Aviva. You know, I was in the stands. I moved around a bit, and I, I genuinely noticed it last year that there was more of a respect, and and that's a good thing for it as well. Yeah, I suppose no harm, certainly from the fans' perspective. Um, the one thing that we were, were remarking on today, uh, the two Heineken Cup semi-finals come after fairly big achievements for the Ireland team in 06 on St. Patrick's Day. Shane Horgan scores the two tries against England. And then three or four weeks later, there's a Heineken Cup semi-final in the old Lansdowne Road. 
And then in 09, we win a Grand Slam. And uh, three or four weeks later, there's a Heineken Cup semi-final in Croke Park. Um, you go to battle, you win these amazing things. There's a, an amazing end to the Triple Crown, an amazing end to the Grand Slam. And then you go and kill each other four weeks later. Yeah, it's, it, you kind of flick a switch and come in and out of teams. Um, and it was never an issue. It was never something that I thought about. Um, one of the things that probably helped was that at no stage did Leinster ever know through a Six Nations that they had Munster in the Heineken quarterfinal. Yeah. I know that that happened with Ulster and, and Munster and I, I, I don't know what those lads were thinking during that Six Nations campaign. Um, but I always felt that um, you just had when you're wearing green you're wearing green and then when you switch back into provincial mode that was the be all and end all as well so um, yeah it, people often ask that question and they don't understand how you can go from being teammates to you know to enemies but it, it's it's just being professional and doing your job as best you can and having an ability to be passionate about two teams yes Ireland is is the ultimate but you know your problems comes a, a close second best yeah and also if you didn't want to kill each other, then you probably wouldn't be able to join together to kill the opposition the next time. Yeah, but you, you, you also gain respect f- uh, from your Irish teammates by playing against them. And you always try and get one up on them to try and prove to them that, you know, that's what they've got in, uh, you know, in their side when they play in the green jersey, that that's what you're capable of. Um, so yeah, I would always have tried to go out and had one of my better games against Munster uh, because I knew I needed to play well to for, to help my team first and foremost, but also to try and gain the respect of those guys that uh, maybe in the early years I wasn't sure that they had um, that, yeah. that you know we we necessarily had, but it was about trying to go and achieve that. Yeah, I mean it sounds crazy now having won the three hunting cups, but Alan, it's it's, it's it, I wonder is it clear that that monster team did have the measure of Leinster for a long period of time, and while the games were big games and everything, you guys were focused on hunting cups. Yeah, well, I think um, Leinster, obviously, I think there was a you know, feeling in our camp that probably we had maybe better forwards. Leinster had better backs over the years. And I think we, we, we tried to kind of hammer home that one in, in when we won games before Leinster started beating us more regularly. And that's not to say they didn't win matches because they, did, they won a few. We probably won a couple of more, but they still won plenty of games. But we, we always tried to... You know, hammer home, scrum, line out, um, you know, forward play, and then you had Draco and Shaggy and and Dennis on the wing, and we 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 couldn't really cope with that. So our way of stopping that was dominate up front and play a good kicking game and stuff like that, and it worked for a long time. But that all changed with Leinster, and I think Cheka probably played a huge part in in changing that perception of Leinster being soft up front. And I'm not saying they they were soft, but we we were able to get a bit of an edge in them, you know. There's probably matches Drick can remember over the years that he was frustrated in the back line where, you know, scrum wasn't right and they didn't have that platform to attack from. Whereas when they fixed that and got proper ball to, to the Drickles, the Shaggies, the Contopomies, Dennis, Hickey, Gervin Dempsey, these guys, when they got quality possession, then, you know, that perception changed where they got a bit steel up, steely up front. You know, Leo and Shane Jennings came back. They had that bit of experience in Leicester and... and that whole perception changed and suddenly Leinster now were able to compete up front with the best of them and they combined, you know, always they had a good back line and they combined that pack and that back line together and, and they got success from it. So I think that's been honest and truthful. That perception was there that there was a soft underbelly to Leinster 
and okay they'd write, raise it on some occasions against Munster and win some matches but we won more often and then that completely changed where you know I'd be interested to hear what Draco's thoughts are on the check yeah, it it's situation. funny yeah no obviously Mike, Michael was, was massive to us and definitely um he, he definitely did give us a, um, an element to steal to our game, but the Leo and Geno coming back uh, part was absolutely vital to that. I think what they had learnt in Leicester was key. They brought all the best of Leicester back with them and, and had that integrated into our setup. Um, but I think if you look back, and we were completely stifled uh, in that 06 semi final, and that's the, you know, that's uh, the, the, the prime example of what Quinny is talking about is, you know, if you can stop, if you were able to stop us back then uh, with first phase possession of scrum and line out, it's very hard to live off scraps. Yeah. And uh, and that's what we did. And then you try and force things and that's when more mistakes happen. So uh, that was a that was a big aspect when we were able to get parity in, in at least in in line out and scrum and we had you know good launch to, to, to play off. I thought we were in a much better place and I think that's probably what Cheka brought to us uh, albeit it didn't quite happen for us in that 06 um, Yeah but he brought I think he brought a mental toughness as well and, and that's something that maybe we developed a little bit more because we probably had more of a real stable group that probably started in 97 96, 97 together and we, we, we had some big characters especially up front that mental toughness and, and you know what Leinster have displayed in the last six, seven years, uh, resilience away from home. It's, it's everything that we try to aspire to have and it helped us in our success in Europe, especially in the early days, you know, 2001, two, three, when we were able to go to France and get a result, um, you know, get to finals, semi-finals, a bit of bad luck kind of cost us once or twice, but we had a real belief on the road that we could win and stuff. And you look at Leinster in the last few years, they can just rock up to any place and, they look like a team from their body language before the game that this isn't daunting. I, I really, the one that stands out for me is the semi-final in Bordeaux against Clermont where, you know, people were saying Clermont, South of France, superstars team, Leinster a good team, but this is going to be just a step too far. And I just remember looking at the body language saying, you know, this is a Leinster team that looks like a team that, that can win, that believes they can win, and that probably will win. And, and that was the complete change in psychology, body language, temperament, mental strength. And, and that's what you need, I suppose. The, the, the European competition now, it's, it's, uh, it's so competitive. So many teams want to win it. Um, you're competing against the budgets in France. Yeah, you're okay. right. Yeah, you're right with that one, Quinny, in, in Claremont too. I remember, the, you know, never feeling so um, so relaxed at half time. I think we were six down and... It's just the, the conversation was, no, it's fine. It was, there, was no, there was no panic at any stage. So, okay, let's just play through the, 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 what we've done during the week. And we had so much belief in our play and, and, and being accurate. That was Joe's thing and still is just about accuracy in everything you do. And, yeah, we talked. A couple of people mentioned a few things. Johnny said, why don't we try this play, uh, as he does at half times. And uh, sure enough, we scored off. off it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think we'd actually practiced it for that week. But it was in the locker, and he said, "Listen, I think that's, um, I think that would be a really good play for this team." But I, I think Draco, that that experience, that mental strength, it comes with experience. And I think the run we had with Munster, we had gained that experience. We lost probably some of those big semi-finals, quarter-finals, finals, and suddenly you create a bond in the dressing room. And we, and, and that's the one thing I miss the most: the bond in that dressing room and that kind of toughness. You look around your dressing room. 
and you see leaders, you see guys who are mentally tough, who are not afraid to go to France, they're not afraid to play the big players, you know that three or four different guys each week are going to put their hands up and say, you know, I'm going to step up today, I'm going to perform, I'm going to take hold of the game, I'm going to make a big decision, and, and, and that's the stuff that gave Munster the success, and, and you know, I'm sure it's it's stuff that you can remember as well from... It, it comes from being fed up as well. Yeah, absolutely. Fe- playing second fiddle. <laughs> so that's what it did for us. And, you know, people, we, I was asked on the show a couple of weeks ago, um, did, you know, were Munster yeah. uh, the reason that, you know, Leinster have gone on? And there were a bit of it, of course. There were. You have to, you know, to, to have that envy of their two Heineken trophies when we had nothing. With, oh, we, won a, we won a Magnus League just the week before they won their, their second Heineken and... Um, I just remember thinking, I've got to get me w- one of those, and uh, and it definitely drove us on. And it was, um, I wouldn't quite say the inspiration, but they were definitely p- you know part of the reason that we kicked on to the next level. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's kind of the reason that we're so fascinated by the rivalry is that um, two great teams came along and managed to inspire each other to greater heights. I'm getting shouted out here because we're way over time. Alan, great stuff. Thanks a million. My pleasure. It was great. Alan Quinlan, give us uh, some thoughts on that. Those um, You mentioned the Claremont game. Um, that game and the Bloodgate game, because are, are, they're both road games, are, okay, so obviously beating Munster in a Heineken Cup semi-final for Leinster fans, but when you talk to them, they pinpoint those two games as kind of almost the most special games. I don't know. Can you do that as a player? Do you yeah, have... you, you can. And Like just pivotal games in, in your club's um, history. Yeah, it would be, it's not... Overly romantic to to uh, look back on on that. Um, no, Jesus! If you that, lose that, that Harlequins game. game, yeah. It's a, but the thing is, you, you don't win Claremont if you haven't won that Quinns game. So you look at them two different ways. We're um, we just scraped through for qualification, uh, you know, that year in '09, and then having to go on the road. And obviously, we didn't know the whole blood, Bloodgate thing was going on, but we still knew that we had to not allow Nick Evans to have a good shot at a drop goal. So all of that stuff and all the process that we went of the defensive line and making sure that we were we just weren't going to be beaten, and then kicking on to the Munster game, and that kicked us, that helped us you know, move on to the next level and give us the confidence to win the final. But I think all of that added to us being able to go to, to Bordeaux and believe that we could we could beat Claremont yeah. you know, in their own country, a, a team of Galacticos and um and you know it was a it was whatever, a two point game in the or sorry, it was a four point game because they couldn't they couldn't kick a goal at the end, they had to score a try. Um but yeah, it just it it inspired belief to be able to to go from being a one time winner of the of the Heineken at uh, two time, and that was that was our third one. If we're sending you into space with uh, only one game on a continuous loop, is it the game at the Stoop or is it the game at Claremont? No, it's Claremont. Is it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now the Stoop was just ground out, whereas Claremont there was finesse to it. On that note, Brian, thanks very much. Cheers. Off the ball, brought to you by Ford Swappage. Out with the old, in with the new at FordSwappage.ie.